may be seated. And as you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, uh, I want to thank all of those who are here today. And uh, I want to encourage you, if this is your first time visiting Fellowship Baptist Church, if you could take the bulletin that hopefully you were handed on your way in, there's an attachment to that that you can rip off, and it's a connection card. If you take just a moment to fill out the information there, what we're doing in the month of December is we are donating $10 for each connection card filled out by a visitor, or if it's your first or 50th time, but you've not filled one out, I encourage you to turn this in at the offering that will take place at the end of our service. Uh, we certainly don't expect our guests to give monetarily to the offering, but if you could drop this in there, that would be a huge blessing, and we'll just pass the love on to a good nonprofit in our area called Russell, Russell Child Development. Uh, they do a lot of good things in our community and certainly appreciative for them. And so I encourage you to do that this morning as you're turning to Luke chapter number one in your Bibles. I think we'd all agree that there are some moments in our life that we'll never forget where we were when we heard the news. Some of you, not all of you, and I probably won't make you call yourselves out this morning, You've been around long enough to remember maybe where you were when you found out that President John F. Kennedy had been shot in 1963. I think about everyone in here uh, can probably remember uh, where you were the day uh, and where you were when you found out that the Twin Towers in New York City were under attack. How many of you remember exactly where you were when you heard that news? I remember where I was and... Um, I'll never forget, you know, what, what that was like. There's a lot of other moments in life, certainly not terrible ones like that. Some people maybe would remember the uh, Oklahoma City bombing. But for me, I'll never forget where I was when I found out that Shelby and I were expecting our first child in 2016. Um, the reason I'll never forget is most people, they probably find out they're pregnant at a doctor's office or at home for me, um, we had been hoping for a child for several months, and I was at work literally about ready to meet with someone about a uh, 4th of July program that was going on at our church. And so uh, little did I know, he, was, he had already texted me. He was coming to my office to come meet with me about this program. And right as he was about to step into my office, I get a phone call from my wife, who admittedly was like, I would have waited till you're home, but I wanted to just call you right now, and she told me that we were expecting our first child, and there was obviously a lot of emotion around that, and I remember as I'm on the phone with her, um, my office was kind of in a godforsaken corner of our church building, and the hallway was dark, but I could see this guy, Aaron, his red hair outside my office window, and I'm sitting here, you know, on the phone with my wife, uh, and I think he could tell, like, this is not really something I should walk into, so he motions through the window, like, do you want me to come back later? You know, I'm like, yeah, get out of here. And so I'll never forget where we were. We found out uh, that we were expecting our first child. And this morning, what we're going to do in Luke chapter one is we're going to drop in on the pregnancy announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ. 
Now, most of us, when we hear of another pregnancy announcement, maybe you're on Facebook and you see someone who's a friend on Facebook and you see that they're expecting a kid or maybe, you know, you scroll past that family that's like, they could be pregnant anytime. They're always having kids. You know, most of us, when we hear a pregnancy announcement, unless it's our grandkid or something like that, we just scroll past and say, oh, that's, that's cute. That's great. But this morning's pregnancy announcement is different. Of course, the, the passage we're going to read in Luke chapter 1 is not just there to say, yeah, Jesus is going to be born and he's going to be born of a virgin. No, what we're going to find this morning is that this very often visited passage over the Christmas season has real big relevance to your life and to mine. What we're going to find is that this unexpected pregnancy announcement is going to teach us something about the unexpected moments of our lives. This good news that is given to a very unlikely woman is going to teach us something about how God uses unlikely people. And this news of an impossible birth, a baby being born from a virgin, is going to give us huge encouragement as no doubt all of us in our lives are facing situations that seem impossible. And so this morning, I want us to find our place in our paper Bible or digital Bible in Luke chapter one. And I want us to read together verses 26 through 28. In our passage, as we read, you'll see it breaks down in kind of three sections. We'll read about a very unlikely woman. We'll read about a promised savior. And we will read about an impossible birth. So let's meet together in Luke chapter one, verse number 26. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused or engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. And the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. I want you to really highlight verse 37. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And then Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me 
according to thy word, and the angel departed from her. Our text really highlights this morning this very unlikely woman, Mary. Now, most of us, we, we, we don't really appreciate this because Mary has been part of the Christmas tradition celebration for centuries, right? She's this heroic figure, maybe because of the veneration of the Catholic Church or things like that. We don't really appreciate the type of background that Mary comes from. But what we have to recognize is that the way that our passage is written, it is intentionally highlighting how unlikely she was. Now, we all are very familiar with this pregnancy announcement in verses 26 through 38, but this is actually, in the first chapter of Luke, the second pregnancy announcement. There was an earlier pregnancy announcement in the earliest part. This is actually how the book of Luke opens up, and this is not by accident, that he opens up with the camera pointed at a couple that in their own way is very unlikely. It's this older couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah is this older priest who's serving in the temple. And his wife, Elizabeth, is an older woman. She's well past the age of having children. And the angel announces to them that they will have a son at this very extraordinary age. Now, we all know who that son is, right? He is John the Baptist. And by the way, he's the cousin of Jesus. But as important as John is, what Luke is doing in Luke chapter one is he's showing this very significant couple in a lot of ways with a, very, with a son who would be important in his own right, but then he points the camera to Mary, who is far less well-known, but yet she is going to give birth to a son who is far more well-known, the savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And throughout Luke chapter number one, there's a big contrast, right? Chapter one, verse five shows us that Zechariah belonged to a family of priests. This is a very honorable profession. Priests, they were serving in the temple. And yet Jesus is born to Mary, who by the way, we have no idea what her background is. We have no family tree for Mary. We have one for Joseph who connects Jesus to the line of David, but Mary's background is never given. All we know is that Mary is in this city called Nazareth. More on that later. Verse number six of chapter number one shows that the parents of John the Baptist, look at it, were righteous and blameless in the law of God. These are very religious people, very ethical people, very high integrity type of people. But what's interesting about the passage about Mary is her character is not really pointed out. It does not say the same things about Mary. Now that's not to say that Mary was a bad person, but she certainly would have garnered no attention because of her character. She just was an ordinary girl. Chapter one, verse 13 shows that the birth of John the Baptist to this couple past age was an answer to their prayer. Look at verse number 13. Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, right? So here's this couple, they're giving birth to a child in its own right, miraculously, but it's an answer to their prayers. And yet here is Mary and she has never prayed. God, I wanna have a child when I'm a virgin and then face the outcast status of society. And yet here is Mary, who's not from the upper class town, 
who's not from a lineage of priests, who's not from a background of high means, who has no status, and yet it would be Mary that would give birth to the king of kings. It would be Mary that when the angel stood before her, he said to her that the Lord is with you. Verse number 30, it would be Mary, this unknown girl, that it is said in verse number 30 that she has found favor with God. Now, it's easy for us to recognize that those are like really good things to be said of Mary. But what we have to recognize to really get the richness of what's going on here is that those statements, the Lord is with you and you have found favor with God. If you were an Old Testament Jew, those are the statements that you only read about the top tier A-list heroes of the Old Testament. The only people that it said that the Lord is with them and they had found favor with God are people like Noah, people like Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, people like Moses, people like Gideon, people like David. And yet the, the, the angels appearing to this uh, unknown virgin girl, probably quite young, and he's saying to her that you are of the same status in God's eyes as the greatest heroes of the Old Testament. This morning, we have to ask the question, what on earth is different about Mary that she is given the same designation as the greatest people in the entire Old Testament? We have to ask ourselves that question. What did she do to earn this kind of status? How much money was she giving to the temple to earn this status? How religious was she to earn this status? And if you're asking those type of questions, you're a little bit off track. Because what verses 28 and 30 show us is that Mary's favor in the eyes of God had nothing to do with her and had everything to do with God's grace. Look at verse 28. The angel says to Mary, Hail, thou that art highly favored. Now in our English translation, it's a different word, but in the original language, the same idea of favor is the word we are all very familiar with in church, the word grace. Quite literally, what the angel is saying is, Mary, you are very graced by God. Verse number 30, the angel repeats that same idea again in verse number 30, that she has found favor with God. The idea there is not that she's God's favorite because she did something extraordinary. The idea there is that she has found grace in the eyes of God. Sounds a lot like Noah, if you remember from several weeks ago. So here's this young woman who is chosen for the greatest task to give birth to the Son of God. And what the angel shows us in his announcement is that this unlikely woman did not earn that privilege. She was given that privilege by the grace of God. What does this passage teach us? It teaches us that it is God's grace that gives extraordinary favor to very unlikely people. 
See, as Christians, we believe this is the core of Christianity. That Christians believe this, that you and I cannot get in God's good favor by our own good deeds, right? We don't think that it's possible for you to earn a slot in heaven. You can't do enough good deeds. You can't go to enough church services. Sorry. You can't give enough money to the church. You can't do anything to earn a slot in heaven. You can't do enough to have a personal relationship with God. The only way you can be saved from the consequences of your sins is by the same unmerited favor, the same grace that took an unlikely virgin woman and put her in the highest tier of usefulness to God. Wouldn't you agree this morning that the Bible is full of stories of God showing his grace to unlikely people. I just wanna skim through the gospel of Luke and remind you of how often this message pops up. See, in the gospel of Luke, God's grace is going to heal a Samaritan leper. And it's gonna be that Samaritan leper, the, the outcast, the most despised race in Jewish culture. It's going to be God's grace in that Samaritan that's going to make him an example of gratitude. Where Jesus is gonna say that it's only that Samaritan leper who showed proper gratitude for his healing. It will be God's grace that takes a prostitute in Luke number seven. And it is that prostitute who's going to be an example of lavishly anointing the feet of Jesus as a testimony of her faith. It will be the grace of God that takes a Roman soldier, a guy who had no religious background, and it's gonna be true of that Roman soldier that Jesus is gonna say that I have not found faith as great as your faith in all of Israel. It's gonna be the, the grace of God that takes a tax collector and somebody witnessed that nobody likes tax collectors. No one is like, you know, my favorite government agency is the IRS. Please, could the next president make sure they expand the IRS? No one says that. In their day, they didn't even have a tax code. They just arbitrarily said, you owe me this much money and skimmed off the top of it. And yet it's gonna be God's grace that's gonna take that guy and he's gonna be fundamentally changed by the grace of God. And in that account, he's gonna be an example of hospitality to Jesus, of evangelism to his friends who don't know Jesus. And he is going to restore what he stole sevenfold to everyone he robbed, which was even more than the Old Testament law commanded. The Old Testament law said, if you stole from somebody, you would have to give back 20% extra. But what Zacchaeus is going to do is he's going to give back 700% of what he stole. Do you get the point this morning that it is God's grace that takes the most unlikely people who, from the most unlikely backgrounds, from the most unattractive means, and it is God's grace that's going to take those people and make them extraordinarily useful to his kingdom. It's going to be God's grace that is gonna put people who you would have never picked for the most important mission. And he is going to take those people 
and commissioned them to do the most extraordinary things for God. So many of us, we think we're of no use to God. We can't possibly be used by God because we're too old. We're too young. By the way, Mary's, Mary's a teenager. So what does that say about God's view of youth and usefulness? We're too weak. We're too busy. We're too ugly. I don't know. The excuses go on and on. And yet so many of us, we say, God can't possibly use me because, but here's what Luke does. He holds up this unlikely woman who was a nobody, who was the last person anyone would have expected to be the mother of the Savior. And he says, that's the person God uses, not because she's impressive, but because God's grace is impressive. Luke number one shows us this, that God often uses the smallest people for the biggest jobs. He uses the smallest people for the biggest jobs. In verses 31 through 33, show us how big of a job Mary had because she was not giving birth to an ordinary person. She was giving birth to the promised savior. The promised savior in which all of the hopes of God's people for centuries were wrapped up in the birth of this savior. Notice in verses 31 through 33, the description of this promised savior. Look at verse 31. He says, you'll conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and you will call his name Jesus. Now there's significance to that name because that name literally means Jehovah saves. It's like Joshua. And then the passage begins to tell us who this Jesus is going to be. Verse number 32, look at it. It says he will be great, that's of high status, which is ironic because he's coming from a family of very low status. So he'll be of high status and he will be called, look at verse 32, the son of the highest or the son of the most high. Now that's an important thing because in the Old Testament, the only person that you called the highest or the most high was God himself. Look at Psalm 83, 18 on the screen. It says that men may know that thou whose name alone is Jehovah art the most high over all the earth. You know what Luke is saying? That this baby that would come from Mary would be the very son of God himself. He would be, his father would be God himself. And then verses 32 through 33, all of us non-Jewish people, we may not immediately appreciate the language here, but if you are a Jewish person, here's what you recognize. That every promise God made to Abraham, he would make a, a great nation out of the Jews, was then uh, encapsulated in the later promise that God made to David, the first great king on the throne of Israel. David was amazing. He, he was the one who expanded Israel's territory more than any other king. It was David who allowed peace to come to God's kingdom. It was under David's rule that people really uh, the worship of God was more important than really almost at any other time in the kingdom. It was really the idyllic time of Israel's kingdom. Many of us, maybe we could pick past presidents and put in our mind that that would have been the ideal era for America. If you asked a Jew when the best time was in the kingdom of Israel, everyone would have answered the same. King David, biggest kingdom, most prosperous kingdom, lowest taxes, I mean, Solomon, 
He's like some presidents we know. He likes to hike up them taxes, but everyone liked David. But David dropped dead. He, he disappeared off the scene. But it was before David died, God gave a promise to David and said this, that I'm going to preserve your lineage forever. I'm gonna make sure that one of your sons sits on the throne forever. So David, I'm sure on his deathbed had high hopes because it's pretty rare, you could study history, it's pretty rare for one single family to possess the throne for an entire nation's history, right? It's very, very rare. There's normally a rebellion or a revolt at some time or another that dethrones one family and enthrones another. But if you read the Old Testament, you find out that it was literally two kings later that this kingdom David was promised to have uh, under the, the ruling of his lineage was split in half. And then it wasn't much later that this kingdom that David's family was supposed to rule over forever was no longer. It was in Babylon, taken captive as slaves. And at the very time that Jesus appears on earth, this kingdom of Israel was under um, Roman rule. It, they did not have their own kingdom. They had their own like vassal rulers, but ultimately the people who called the shots was not the Israeli leaders. It was the Roman rulers. But yet all throughout Israel's history, during all of those dark times, all of their minds would go to one hope. God said that the throne would not depart from the family of David. He said there would be a Davidic king that would be one of David's sons that would come and he would break us free from the chains of bondage. He would save us from the oppression of the Romans and he would give us the kingdom that we were supposed to have back in David's time. And that's why verses 32 through 33 are really significant. Look at verse 32. Because the angel starts to quote this Old Testament prophecy in 2 Samuel 7. Speaking of Jesus, he says this, he will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob, that's all the Jews, forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Who is Jesus? He is the promised Davidic king. He would not have a kingdom that would last one lifespan. He would have a kingdom that would last for eternity. And the hope that all of God's people had been waiting for for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, was now going to be fulfilled in this one baby born from this very unlikely woman. What Luke is showing us is that the hopes of all of the Old Testament are wrapped up in this one person being born of Mary who isn't quite a person. He is the son of God made man. Now this morning, here's what we can learn from this promise being fulfilled in Christ. We can learn, number one, that God fulfills his promises on a timeline we least expect. See, David died hopeful that this king would maybe be Solomon, his son, 
that would rule over Israel and the kingdom would last forever. Or maybe people hoped that God would come back and, and, and this king would be uh, instilled in the nation and they would have freedom from the Babylonian captivity. But that didn't happen. 70 years they were without a nation. And here they are, and it has been 400 years since the last prophet spoke. And really a 400 years that's filled with turmoil and a, a lack of self-governance of their nation. And they've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, he comes. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like God was silent? You prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you look in the Bible and it says, the Bible says this. The Bible says that God's gonna do this and you pray and you pray and you pray and you hope and you hope and you hope and yet you're disappointed and disappointed and disappointed and impatient and disappointed and you start getting to the point where you're like, I don't know if this thing's gonna happen. You know what this passage shows us? God doesn't answer promises on the timeline we think he should, but he always fulfills his promise. I said he always fulfills his promise. Do we agree with that this morning? I know some of y'all, you, you've been in seasons of waiting and waiting and hoping and hurting and impatience. And yet God is always faithful to come through. And maybe you're in a season of waiting this morning. Can I just remind you that God never fails? He never fails. He fails if you think he should come through when you think he should come through. If you put on an expectation on God that he never put on himself. But God never fails to come through. And can I remind you this morning that God's greatest promises in the Bible came after the longest seasons of waiting? It was 400 years that God had been silent to his people and then the birth of a savior. There's another big thing that happened after about 400 years of silence from God. You know what it was? It was the exodus, the escape from slavery in Egypt that God raised up a ruler, Moses, that would rescue his people from foreign bondage. My friend, the biggest things God has in store normally come after the longest seasons of waiting. But you know what else we learn from this? We learn this, that God generally over-delivers on his promises. There's a saying in business, isn't there, that we, we always should under-promise and what? Over-deliver. You don't wanna over-promise and under-deliver. You have a friend like that who always makes more promises than they can keep, right? But, but when it comes to God, God never makes more promises than he can keep. And what we see in the fulfillment of Jesus as the son of God, that Davidic king, is that God is fulfilling his promise in a way that's even bigger than the people would have anticipated, even if they were reading their Bibles well. See, what the people expected is they expected a man like David. But what God gives them is a man who is the son of God made flesh. See, David was a man who had sinful passions. He was a man who disobeyed God's laws. Sometimes people forgot about that, but he actually messed up a lot of things. He sinned a lot of times. He had way too many wives. But the king that God would give them would not be a king like David. The king God would give them would be a perfect and holy son of God. 
They expected a king who would rule over their nation, David. But what God gave them is the king of kings, he, the son of the most high, who would not just sit on the throne of his father, David, and restore peace to God's people, but one day the whole earth would be his kingdom. That's the king that they got. Do you see that God over-delivers on his promises? There's never been a single time in the Bible where God fulfilled a promise and one of his people said, is that it? Is that all you've got, God? No, when God steps in and when God does his work, every single time his people are left speechless because God over delivers. He is so, so good. Now here's Mary with this theologically packed message from the angel and she's like you and me, right? The, the theology is like right over her head. And she's like, still scratching her head like, I don't know if you're at the wrong address, Mr. Angel. I don't have any relationship with a dude. If you know what I mean. She's like, I, I don't have a, a guy that I'm sleeping with. So maybe you showed up to the wrong address because there's no possible way on earth that I'm pregnant, right? That's what she says in verse number 34. How can this be if I don't know a man? And what the angel begins to describe in verses 34 through 38 is an impossible birth. I want you to look at verse 35 and see the angel's answer. The virgin birth is obviously a mystery, there's not a way I can explain it to you biologically. But this is the angel's explanation. The Holy Ghost will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Does that clear up the virgin birth for anybody in here? Nope. <laughs> I'm still just as clueless. He uses language from when the, the temple was dedicated and the, the, the glory cloud came in the temple and it is showing how Mary would be filled with the very presence of God. She wouldn't have a man that would conceive this child. No, God would miraculously plant this child in her womb. But he doesn't explain the nuts and bolts. You know what I mean? He's not giving her the birds and the bees. He's just saying, listen, this thing's gonna happen and it's not gonna happen in a way that's explainable to a human. And that's why he says in verse number 37, Mary, could you please not forget that God specializes in the impossible. Look at verse 37. You know what the angel says? Here's how I'll explain it to you. You wanna know how you're gonna have a baby as a virgin? Just remember that nothing is impossible with God. Friends, if you wanna meditate on one verse this week as you head in the Christmas season and Christmas day, could you please just commit this verse to memory? It'll help you in a lot of ways. Nothing will be impossible with God. I like how one person translated it, that God's word never fails. What God says will come to pass. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. God specializes in the impossible. In fact, the angel's quoting from the Old Testament when God did an impossible thing in giving a child to another overage couple, Abraham and Sarah. But this morning, could I remind you that our God specializes in impossible things? 
Do you find yourself this morning facing an impossible financial situation? Nothing's impossible with God. An impossible health situation? Nothing is impossible with God. A situation in which you need healing. A situation in which you need spiritual intervention. You need God to get a hold of that son or that spouse or that friend who's wandering away from him. Friends, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Now, some of you, you're, you're, you're thinking about your situation. You're saying this. Well, if you knew what my situation was, you would agree it's impossible. You ever felt that way? I'm gonna ask this side, all right? You ever felt that way? If you knew what was going on in my life, you would say it's impossible. I got a few of those going on right now. If you knew, you would look at it and be like, don't know how that's gonna happen. And that's what Mary's feeling. She's saying, um, excuse me, sir, I think you forgot that I'm a virgin. I know the nothing shall be impossible thing, but I think you forgot that there's some things in my personal life that rule out this situation. I get it, you know, Elizabeth having a baby in old age, you know, Sarah having a baby at old age. I mean, strange things have happened. Unexplainable things have happened. But Mr. Angel, sir, this is physically impossible. You might say to God, this is spiritually impossible. If you knew that person, Pastor Mike, you would, you would know why I've stopped praying for them. You would know. If you knew how messed up my health was, you would understand why I've stopped praying. If you knew how messed up the situation was, you would be in despair too. You know what God says to people who doubt his ability to do the impossible? He says the same thing they said to Mary in verse 36, that when you find yourself doubting God's power, God invites you to take a look at his portfolio. Mary says, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel says, with, with God, nothing is impossible. He says, in case you still aren't believing me, Mary, let me remind you that I've done the impossible for someone you know. And in verse 36, he tells her about Elizabeth. He, and he's like, you know how old she is. Mary, you know how old that woman is. And he says, she is already six months pregnant. She could not have had a kid. But because of God's miraculous intervention, she had a kid. And so here's what the angel is saying. If you're still doubting my ability as God to give you a child as a virgin, let me just remind you that I am well acquainted with doing impossible things. Church family, this morning, I wanna remind you that when you find yourself doubting God's ability to do the impossible, if you just take your eyes just for a moment and you stop looking at yourself, and you stop looking at your situation, and you start looking around, you will find quickly that God has a portfolio full of impossible things. 
Can I get some seasoned saints to at least amen or nod their head that God has a portfolio full of impossible things? You've been in church long enough, y'all. You've seen it. See, God does these things in people's lives around us as a faith-boosting mechanism. Friends, that's why you need a church community that you don't just sit in rows with, but you stand in circles with and talk with about their life. Because here's what God does through our church community, whether that's standing in the back of the auditorium or having lunch together after a service or studying together at a Wednesday night Bible study or going to a potluck together after a morning service. Why we do that? Because you and I need to sit around some tables together and hear what God is doing in each other's lives. So when we look at our life, we say God can't do it. We can look at their life and say God did do it. And yet what's sad for many of us is that when God is doing the impossible in other people's lives, rather than it boosting our faith, here's what often happens. It boosts our jealousy. Wish God would do that for me. How come he healed them and not me? Really wish I could have bought that. Sure would be nice. When are you gonna figure that one out, God? Friends, can I remind you the very things probably you're jealous of? God intends to use to boost your faith. If God can do it there, maybe, maybe, he can do it here. When you find yourself wondering how God can do an impossible thing through an unlikely woman, the angel says, just take a look at my portfolio. As a church, in the last week, if you've been with us in our Sunday school hour, we often you know, pray about certain things as a church family together. Uh, I know some are serving in our kids' stuff or whatever. We've seen God do two impossible things in the last week. We've seen... God take a young man who's been in the hospital for 13 weeks. And this young man, Lord willing, will be at home this Christmas celebrating with his family, not in a hospital room. Last week, we prayed for Judson and Amber, our children's church leaders. Amber has a surgery on Tuesday. They were going to require her and Judson to put down tens of thousands of dollars up front to even take care of his wife. No exceptions. <laughs> Showing the love of Jesus around Christmas season, right? In the last week, after this thing fell through and this thing fell through, by the way, God's promises don't happen on a timeline we expect, do they? But this thing falls through and this thing falls through. Judson and Amber will go have surgery in Denver for Amber's arm this, this Tuesday and won't pay for it at all. No dollars, no cents. Church family, we need to be around each other because we need the reminder that God does the impossible. So if God's doing something in your life, share it. Share it, y'all. Talk to other people about it. It's not boasting, it's bragging on God. But those of you who are looking for God to do something, stop being jealous and start letting those things boost your faith in 
the fact that God can do the impossible. How do we respond to Luke chapter number one this morning? I want you to ask yourself this question. What does God want you to do in this life that seems impossible? Maybe he's telling you, do you need to obey in a certain area of your life and it seems impossible? Maybe you're praying for something and it seems impossible. Maybe this morning you need to be reminded that God's promises are always better than we think, but they always take a little bit longer than we think too. And I hope this morning, here's how you would respond to the words of God. Look down at verse 38. Mary responds with surrender. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. There's her humility. Be it unto me according to thy word. God, do what you want. I trust in you. Maybe this morning you need to place your faith in the grace that gives salvation to unlikely and yes, undeserving people. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Apart from the grace of Jesus, nobody, nobody will find themselves in heaven when they die. But because of the unlikely and impossible grace of Christ, doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, if you will believe in what Jesus did for you on the cross and through his resurrection and you will accept him as your Lord, that king that is prophesied here, he will save you and give you that same great favor that he gave this young woman, Mary. Every head bowed,